Hello, this is Roman Gabriel, and you are listening to The Grilling Truth. Welcome to The Grilling Truth NFL Legends Show, brought to you by Gridiron Mo. Gridiron Mo is an interactive football app where you get to call what you think the offense or defense should do during a live NFL game and see what all other fans have called also. Check out Gridiron Mo at www.gridironmo.com. I'm your host for The Legends Show, Mike Goodpaster, and our guest today is one of the most accomplished players in NFL history on and off the field, Help me welcome to the Legend Show the greatest linebacker in Cincinnati Bengals history, Reggie Williams. Hey, Mike. How you doing? I appreciate such a wonderful introduction. And as always, we'll never have a chance to touch base with my great memories of being a Cincinnati Bengal. It's really going to be a good time. All right. Well, it's great to have you on. Complete honor. Like I said, you're one of my favorite players growing up. So tell us a little bit about your life growing up when you started playing football and some and who some of your early influences were. Well, you know, it's amazing. I didn't really start playing football until the 10th grade. I was going to go out for football in the 9th grade, but I fell out of a tree right on my head, had my very first concussion, and the swelling was so big I couldn't put a helmet on. And so I started off in the 10th grade and uh, was on the bench for the most part on the junior varsity. It wasn't until I had a chance to really train with uh, one of my good friends who lived down the street. His name was Ricky Taylor. He went on to uh, play for University of Miami football, but he would run up to Flint Southwestern High School and uh, for practice, and then we'd have to walk back after practice home, which was about a half-hour walk one way. And, and that really started my love affair and passion for the sport and being competitive. And my heroes growing up with Jim Brown. He was uh, by far not only my favorite player, but he was my father's favorite player. And the only time that I really saw my father growing up who was growing up uh, because he was working two jobs to take care of his family was on Sunday when he would watch the sports events and he loved the Cleveland Browns and Jim Brown. Yeah and the great thing about Jim Brown like Muhammad Ali he was more than just an athlete he actually did a lot of things in the community outside of that which made him even bigger than the game. No, there's no no doubt that uh, he took a position on uh, what it was like to be a contracted professional player under Paul Brown that uh, ultimately led to the formation of the union uh, within uh, the National Football League. Uh, He was instrumental in uh, supporting uh, Muhammad Ali, as you mentioned earlier, in Muhammad's uh, uh, bid to a resist induction into the armed forces. He gathered a, a bunch of other notable uh, athletes who were willing to put their reputations on the line for a, a bigger cause than what was politically expressed at that time. So Jim Brown, when he made the decision to uh, leave the game, it hurt all of us who loved him because he certainly didn't uh, leave because his talents were no longer an imposing force on the sport. Yeah, because, I mean, heck, he was at the height of the game when he left the game. Exactly. Then he left it to do uh, movies <laughs> and other <Yeah>. things. You <laughs> know, with... But I, I know it was your dream growing up in Michigan to play at Michigan, 
And I've seen some stuff you put on Facebook about Bo Schembechler and, you know, how he didn't really want you there. How did you end up at Dartmouth? It's amazing. Uh, there were Dartmouth coaches recruiting all of the schools in Michigan my junior year. And uh, they weren't recruiting me. They were recruiting a senior named Jeff Natchez, who ultimately uh, became a player in the Detroit Tigers minor league system. But while they were looking at Jeff Natchez, who was academically oriented, they asked the coach who else on the roster at least met the minimum academic requirements. And I did, and they put me on the list. Well, that complete coaching staff left to uh, go to Illinois. And um, I ended up with a new coach, uh, Jake Krauthammer, who continued to recruit me. And when uh, Bo Schimbeckler, and the reason it was so impactful, his uh, lack of desire to have me play in his team is because you grew up idolizing him. I mean, I really felt every word he was saying was almost gospel. And there was nothing that would have been as, uh, aspirational for me as a high school student. The reason I studied so hard was the chance to play at Michigan. And uh, uh, realistically, I only applied to three schools. I would have either gone to Michigan, which I had a full uh, academic scholarship on. If I would have got into Dartmouth, then uh, with the lack of opportunity to at least play football in Michigan, I, was, I obviously ended up at Dartmouth. But otherwise, I would have gone to a little small school in Michigan called Albion College. Okay, I've heard of that. And, but I'm sure I never would have made the jump to the NFL from Albion College. I don't know if yeah. anyone ever has. Yeah, so I've read your sophomore year, a win against Harvard, you said, was the game where you knew you had made it. Can you tell us what was so important about that game for you? Well, the reason was uh, you couldn't play football as a freshman in the Ivy League. So my chance to really prove myself amongst the best in Ivy League football was my sophomore year. Well, I came to training camp with a hurt knee, having been uh, hit by a car during my second shift job at Fisher Body in Flint, Michigan, and I came to camp unable to run. And it was during this period of time that I really questioned my own self. I gave up a girlfriend that I really loved from Mount Holyoke Cow to really focus in on what it would require to deal with the pain to be a positive contributor to my teammates. At that time, Dartmouth had been Ivy League champions four years in a row, and they were starting this year 0-3. And And I came off the bench to play a little bit in the fourth game at outside linebacker, and we won the game against Brown. It was the next week at Harvard, who was undefeated at that time. We were 1-3. and I am starting my first game at middle linebacker because the middle linebacker, Pat Stone, had been injured in the previous game. And the big thing for me was my linebacker coach, Rick Taylor, gave me the responsibility as a sophomore in my very first game to call the signals, to take the full 
mantle of responsibility of leadership in that very, very important game. And that's why it was what such a differential. I had a lot of tackles. I had a lot of uh, sacks. I really disrupted, along with our entire defense. We had four goal line stands in that game. And it was such a determined effort by everyone who were equally inspired that for me, that's what football was all about. It was going to be so fun, and it was going to be so eventful. And we ended up winning all of the rest of our games that year and repeated for the fifth straight time as Ivy League champion. And that really is the apex of my champion stories. I mean, even the two AFC championships that I enjoyed for the Cincinnati Bengals, they weren't the championships because they weren't Super Bowls. The only time I ever stood at any mountain, you know, amongst my peers in football was when I was the 1973 Ivy League champions. And, um, All right, now, when you that, were at Dartmouth, who was the biggest influence on you? Was it a coach, another player, a professor? Or? Well, I had a lot of influence, but, you know, uh, Jay Crowhammel made the decision when I was a freshman that I was going to move from running back because I wanted to be Jim Brown, and I was going to go to Dartmouth to be Jim Brown. He said, well, I know you want to be Jim Brown, but you're going to be a linebacker to me. And he changed my uh, position uh, to a linebacker, and that was really something that uh, was very surprising to me, but it was something that obviously I excelled on. He believed in my talents more than I believed in my talents, and it was the complete opposite of what I was hearing from Bo Schimbeckler. And so that's why Jake uh, Crowdhamble, who is still uh, living in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire now, he has retired from a long, very productive, successful career as athletic director at Syracuse University. So, you know, he's uh, had an impact on a lot of young men and young women's lives all over the world. Yeah, now we get to draft day, 1976. The draft a lot different now than it was then. You want to explain to us a little bit what your draft process was leading up to that and the actual draft day? Well, you know, there really there was a draft, of course, but, you know, it was 17 rounds and there was no combine. So all of the teams individually scouted all of the players, and you really didn't know you know, who to believe, because I remember specifically being told by the Dallas Cowboys that I was going to be a first-round draft choice. And at that time, the Canadian Football League had a draft before the NFL draft, and the Canadian Football League at that time was competitive. Anthony Davis had already left uh, USC. Instead of going to the NFL, he had gone to Toronto, And Toronto had drafted me number one in the CFL draft and really made an aggressive uh, contractual uh, um, uh, bid offer for my first contract. Significantly, they offered me $100,000 in 1976. I ended up 
signing for the Cincinnati Bengals for $35,000. I mean, they were going to pay me three times as much, not counting the bonus, uh, to play for Toronto. So it was a different time when uh, you consider that uh, players now just making the squad will make ten times that in a single season. All right, so you get drafted by the Bengals. What was your first impression of going to Cincinnati? Well, you know, I'd never been to Cincinnati before. When I first got there in the, the, the summer, I'm trying to remember that the real fancy hotel, that Hilton down, uh, downtown, um, that uh, is where I arrived, connected to a mall. It was something so distant, distantly dissimilar from anything in Hanover, New Hampshire. I was going to the big city, you know, and uh, it was hot and sort of a um, stifling heat that was mixed with this strange odor at Spinney Field. But I was excited to be there. I was uh, having an opportunity to uh, meet Paul Brown, but the reason that I was interested in Paul Brown is that I knew his son, Mike Brown. Mike Brown was a Dartmouth quarterback that at the time still held the record for the most points with the least amount of carries for Dartmouth College, which meant that he scored a lot of quarterback sneaks for touchdowns. Yeah, well, I think he graduated and, uh, there in the late 50s, wasn't it, like 1957 or so? Yes, he's uh, 1957. So whether it's coincidence or not, I was given the number 57. Even though my desire was to play in number 63, which was the number I wore at Dartmouth, and that number was in honor of uh, Willie Lanier, who was my other favorite player when I grew up for the Kansas City Chiefs. That middle linebacker played some great football, and also he was one of the top uh, humanitarians in the NFL, winning the NFL Man of the Year in the third year. He was the first defensive player to win the NFL Man of the Year. Yeah, definitely a great player. I believe he's in the Hall of Fame. Um, yes, he so is. What was, what was your relationship like with Paul Brown? We had a very positive relationship. I mean, Paul was pure football. That was his passion and love affair. And you learned very early on how strongly he felt about uh, any victory against Cleveland. I mean, the stories, you know, you heard uh, about, but, you know, you could see when uh, Cleveland week came up, he was very engaged. And it was my rookie year, the very first away game to go to Cleveland when I'm a bench warmer, that I sort of caught his eye. And I did it because on that Saturday walkthrough practice before the big game, before he even flew to Cleveland, the starting right outside linebacker, Ron Pritchard, collapsed. And um, his cartilage went out, and all of a sudden, we didn't have a right outside linebacker. Instead of the coaching staff having the confidence of starting an Ivy Leaguer it linebacker against their arch enemy, 
they turn to the number two inside linebacker, Glenn Cameron, who had been the number one draft choice the year before, and they started him at outside linebacker. And so it wasn't until the second quarter that the team realized that wasn't a pretty good idea. (laughs) They had everything to gain uh, because it just wasn't working with Glenn's ability to tackle in open space. And the one thing that I had gained from special teams performance prior was that I learned to tackle in open space. And Cleveland at that time had a great open space runner in Greg Pruitt. And so they brought me off the bench and uh, stuck me in the lineup, and I played so inspirational because Cleveland was the home field of my hero, Jim Brown. I'm playing on his turf. I'm walking up through his visitors' dugout, you know, in the Cleveland Indians formation of the stadium. But it's all a sort of spiritual experience and also on the Cleveland Browns team is the greatest running back from the Ivy League, and that was Calvin Hill. He was a backup running back, but he was playing too. And I remember the first time I faced off against Calvin Hill, and he still talks about it to this day because I'm blitzing and he's trying to block me. And I remember hitting him with everything I had. I mean, every amount of antagonism between Dartmouth football against Yale football (laughs) was going to happen on that very play. And I hit him, and he disappeared. I mean, he absolutely disappeared. And I went, I said, where did he go? And I went, you know, I went right past him, hit the quarterback, you know, forced the quarterback to throw a bad pass. And I looked around for Calvin. He was way like 10 yards away. and knocked him that far. <laughs> and he talks about that moment where he got hit so hard, the hardest he says that he's ever been hit. That's one of the reasons I shared that video with you with Earl Campbell. Because when I give a story like that, I don't want to – it to come off like I'm bragging or anything, but that was a moment where I had a lot to prove in my mind against, in my mind, the greatest player that has ever played in the Ivy League, much more than, you know, the the player that was the movie actor, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So uh, um, you get to the Bengals, 1973-75, it had been a playoff team, very talented team your first couple years there. Was there anybody there that kind of took you under their wing to help you out? Well, Gary Burley was uh, one of the first uh, players that I met as a rookie who really took me under his wing and helped me find a good place to uh, stay. Um, I played next to Coy Bacon, and he took me under his wing just because how ferocious he was. I mean, to be able to play against a guy that was setting the NFL record for sacks, and he was an institution in the old, you know, L.A. Ram defense, and to play with this guy, you know, and learn from his tenacity now, there were things about Coy that you didn't necessarily want to learn because there were many a, a, a day in practice that he came to practice smelling of alcohol. But 
when it came to game day, he balled. And uh, he was uh, – I've never played next to a player like that. I mean, Ross Bronner was great. You know, you've had Jason Buck on the show. He's been great. You know, uh, Skip McClendon, great players. But no one was able to get that many sacks in that few of games as Coy Bacon did my rookie year. Yeah, it's a shame that they didn't start officially doing the sack records until a few years later because I think if they would have, Coy would be in the Hall of Fame. That is absolutely the, the truth. They didn't start making the sacks official till 1982. <clears throat> and the thing about that is, in 1981, I led the Cincinnati Bengals with 11 sacks and led our defense to Super Bowl 16. That same year, Lawrence Taylor was a rookie, and he led the New York Giants to 11 sacks and did not take his team to the Super Bowl. But with the power of the New York media, Lawrence Taylor was NFL Defensive Player of the Year, and Reggie Williams was a guy who didn't even make the Pro Bowl. So yeah. That, well, that I mean, we know how became... biased the media is anyways. Well, I'm not trashing on the media, you know, at this stage because you know, the decision was made to really focus in on trying to be the best athlete citizen that I could be in Cincinnati. There were so many wonderful relationships that uh, were formated in trying to work with the school system, work with uh, the United Way, work with the big brothers and big sisters, Boy Scouts, they were Girl Scouts. There were so many opportunities because Cincinnati as a culture is such a giving and caring community. Yeah. All right, now we, talk, we talked about when you first got there, the Bengals were a really good team, went through some rough years, 78-79. Then you get a new coach by the name of Forrest Gregg. You want to tell us a little bit about what Forrest did to turn around the culture of the Cincinnati Bengals when he got there? Well, you know, as, as we sort of follow what you talked about earlier, because I played well in that first Cleveland game, Paul Brown really supported me. And uh, once we got – through the Bill Tiger Johnson era, we also went into a year and a half of Homer Rice, who yeah. I really liked, who was the athletic director from uh, Georgia Tech, but he really didn't have that tough guy bravado. And that's what they hired, and that's what they brought in Forrest Gregg. I mean, he had the ability to uh, generate that old-style, tough, football, we will be ready to perform in the worst of circumstances. So bring the best out of yourself now. And uh, we immediately sort of had a turnaround. We went, um, I think, the first season to 6-10, uh, and 10, and the next season we went to Super Bowl sixteen. So there were a lot of things that were in place with uh, Kenny Anderson and our offensive line anchored by Anthony Munoz and also Max Montoya, who yeah. was a phenomenal performer for uh, our offensive line. And we had uh, Pete Johnson, big old rugged Ohio State football player and, and uh, one of the SEC's best in Charles, Charlie Alexander. Uh, along with Archie Griffin. So we had some tools along with uh, great 
wide receivers in Isaac Curtis and then the rookie Chris Collinsworth. So there were a lot of things that were, you know, innovative about our team. We were meeting a San Francisco team that had yet to position itself as the team of the 80s, but which could have been our calling card. But um, nonetheless, that's for the history pundits to dissect. All right. Now we'll bring up a game I always like to talk about since I'm a Bengals fan. We'll talk about the Freezer Bowl a little bit against San Diego. Um, what was that day like, the play and weather like that? Well, we knew it was going to be a tough day when we couldn't leave the hotel in our own cars because they were all frozen. And they had to bring one of the hotel bands into the lobby so that we could get on board, squeeze in, and make the trek to the stadium, which was totally empty at that time. It didn't fill up with 40-plus thousand fans until 1 o'clock. No one was sitting there pregame. And uh, no one went out to pregame to warm up. I remember I went out because I felt if there was anyone in our locker room who had the history of playing in the most frigid temperatures, it was me. Not only having a high school career in Flint, Michigan, but no one had it tougher playing in New Hampshire in the winter. And so when I went outside, I came back in, and I was the guy that said, hey, I am going to play this game bare arms. I am not going to wrap anything around my arms. And that's where Anthony Munoz said, me too. And then Max said, yes, I am. And then the whole offensive line of the Cincinnati. And I'll tell you, our locker room was something special at that time. We were getting ready to go to war in the most frigid of circumstances, and we had a head coach that was ready to take us there. And uh, there was no way. When we went out on the field and we saw how bundled up the San Francisco Charger players were, that there was just a mental lurch that let everyone know we got this game, and we really proceeded to route them on that home field in the toughest conditions ever played in the NFL, playoff or not. Yeah, and the thing people forget about is you guys played them in November in 80-degree weather in San Diego and beat them even worse. Exactly. We beat them on their home field in the most optimum circumstances with uh, Air Coriel, led by Dan Fouts, and his phenomenal array of receivers from Jefferson to Winslow. And we're in full effect in front of their home crowd. So, so certainly uh, we know the – history, but there was something romantic about the San Diego Chargers at that time. Even I had sympathy for that team who had played in one of the toughest playoff games ever in Miami, going back and forth, back and forth, players falling apart from cramps and injuries, and exhaustion, and San Diego won that game. They had to fly all the way back across the country, then come back to our place, and then play another football game with a 130 degrees difference in temperature. Yeah, I so, think the game in the Orange Bowl, the playoff game, it was like 84 degrees there, and they come exactly. here, and it's 59 below zero. That's exactly the truth. Yes, it was. 
But they could have changed that by taking care of you guys when you played them in San Diego, and they didn't. So you guys earned the right to be able to have that advantage too. Yes, exactly, because that's how uh, we earned our home field advantage, and that was the year that Riverfront Stadium became the jungle. That's really where the who, day, chants were everywhere, not just in the stadium but on the streets and became part of merchandise and parts of our song vocabulary. So um, it was a special year. I uh, remember mostly about that year how great the fans were when we came back from Detroit after losing Super Bowl 16, and we were all obviously extremely depressed. But as we came out of the airport and pulled onto 275, there were people who stopped their cars and stood out in still very, very cold weather, still in northern Kentucky and Cincinnati, and just waved and clapped. And as we continued until we hit 75 north, and then there was nothing but cars stopping, people standing and cheering and waving as the bus went by until we went all the way downtown the Fountain Square, which was packed. And those fans were the greatest epitome of loyal fans that hung in there that experienced the ebbs and flow of a unique season and were there in the worst conditions to say thank you. And uh, that's one of the biggest things that I feel even to this day, that our fans deserve a championship. And uh, that's why it was so painful when I was part of the team that lost in 23, because we had sort of promised them that. If not with our exact words, it was just with how great they were the first time we lost. You didn't want them to experience that again. But now we're 28 years later, and it's not about, you we know. won a playoff game, about. Reggie. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, you got to kind of laugh about it, but, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, you, know, you want to stay in touch because even though the team doesn't really have you know, a Hall of Fame. It really doesn't call on its former players to be part of today's culture of pursuing a championship. We were part of the fabric of the toughness of this game in Cincinnati, especially from a defense. And I, I appreciate you, you know, opening the show saying that, you know, I'm top linebacker in uh, Cincinnati Bengals history, because that was my goal as a player. You know, even in that point where I spent the last part of my career playing middle linebacker on short yardage and goal line, that was because I'm stepping in Jim LeClaire's shoes. He's the person that taught me how to play NFL football from yeah, he was a, hell of a linebacker player. standpoint. He's a great player, a great teammate, and an inspirational leader for me. So there's a lot of players. When you think about, you know, the bedrock of what the Cincinnati Bengals defense is all about, that they're really – uh, today's players should know about, and they should be proud of and say, I want to play like those guys, and those guys wouldn't blow it with temper tantrums. We didn't, you know, at our time now. 
and we're playing a time that was a more volatile rules time in the NFL. Yeah. Anything and, happened I mean, on the field. You talked a little bit. There was two player strikes while you were playing. You want to talk about those a little bit, 1982 and 1987? Yeah, the 82 uh, strike uh, really took away six regular season games. Um, uh, the only thing good about that strike, because the players got very, very little, was that my oldest son, Julian, was born during that time, so I didn't have to go to practice, and I was there in the hospital and was able to cut his umbilical cord. But beyond that, uh, 82 was really a waste. Uh, we were coming off of Super Bowl 16, and our record was 7-1, and one, but we never played enough games to really know ourselves, and we ended up losing – the first playoff game against the New York Jets at home, which is probably one of our worst performances as a team, probably in uh, Forrest Gregg's whole uh, career. And um, so the second strike was now taking place when I am the NFL man of the year. And it is following – um, a, an experimental surgery on my right knee that has never been successfully done in the NFL, and it was called an abrasion then, but right now it's microfracture surgery. So yeah. I had a surgery that basically abraded, you know, the the femur and then the the tibia below until it bled, and then you basically stayed off that leg for the entire off season. And when we came back, I didn't really run until my very first day of practice and realized I could run and was able to retain my starting job. And uh, the game that was our last game before the strike was a game against San Francisco at home where we were leading by four points with just six seconds on the clock. And we've got the ball. And somehow we ended up losing that game, <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> which is one that. of the most. Oh, man, that was an antagonistic creating uh, lost because everyone started pointing the fingers, and then we went out on strike. And basically, if we had to summarize what the players were striking for, ultimately they got what they were striking for, which they began in 87, and they ultimately achieved some semblance of it in 93, was free agency. And free agency has dramatically changed the pay structure of the NFL. Very good for the top-end players. You have players like Tom Brady who are making $20 million a season, playing next to 10 guys on his team who are making less than a half a million dollars a season. So the disparity is enormous. What I was interested in at that time in my 12th season was more health care. I mean, however you pay individual performance, everyone should be treated to the same quality of great 
health care and for the rest of your life. I mean, many of the, the reason I was able to become the first player to come back from microfracture surgery is because the team was willing to invest in cutting-edge techniques. Well, you'd love to have your team in the league forever invest in cutting-edge techniques that allow aging players to minimize the effects of aging. And so that's one of the reasons, like, now as a hard-hitting linebacker, I'm interested in knowing what the league is doing about CTE. I don't want to know about CTE after I'm dead. I want to know what are some of the things possible now to slow down some of the negative effects. What are the so what's your opinion of how the NFL is taking care of the players now as opposed to a couple of years ago even? No, I think in this uh, subject they are uh, somewhat negligent. And I think they're negligent because the whole proposal right now is uh, only structured to benefit people who who die or who are on the verge of dying and therefore suffering all manner of of end-of-life malady that is very, very uh, cost um, devastating. So no one has a focus group right now that's saying, okay, let's get all of the possible players and what are the things that we can do to teach? What are the things that we can do to minimize the effects? What are some of the things that we can do to teach other people in other industries? Like you're hearing now about many of the, um, the people who are skateboarders and other yeah. action sports who are having concussions and uh, car racing. So there's, a, there's in the military, you know, veterans who are coming back who are getting concussions from IEDs and things like that. So there's a lot of reason to invest in the brain. And uh, so, uh, so at this point in time, though, that's not being done. There are, there are no, none of these $20 million a year players that say, you know what, I want to put $10,000 of my salary and see how we can help learn from some of these other players. Who are yeah, going to because be when you're 30 years old, you're in the NFL, you think you're invincible and it's never going to happen to you anyway. You're absolutely right. And uh, that, that was something that at the time I had the inability to communicate with uh, my teammates. But you know what? So I ended up in a very acrimonious uh, place myself. Uh, during the 87 uh, strike, I, you know, Boomer Sison basically led the union. He was uh, supported by the whole team and Chris Collinsworth. And um, it, it, that ended up being a lost season. I think we ended up only losing one game, uh, but we ended up uh, with a 4-11 season. But I will say this, during those replacement games, I had a great time. <laughs> I mean, I Except really for that Cleveland enjoyed. game, that was pretty rough, wasn't it? Oh man, yeah, they were. That was the third one, and the Cleveland game was tough because Cleveland was able to get like six or seven of their veteran players on the roster, and we weren't able to get any. So it was still just me against, you know, now seven, you know, qualified NFL opponents plus whoever the replacement players were, 
And we lost that game at home, and it was not a pretty set. But the week before, we had gone out to Seattle. And uh, we had um, won that game, and that was really a fun victory. And, you know, the guys, most of whom I can't remember any of their names, they played their hearts out. And, hey, and um, I can tell you this. I've got that game, Reggie. I'd like to see it, man. So, you know, the one I'll thing that it. was – well, you know, one of the things that's unusual about that game is because it was out in Seattle. I remember the night before spending time the whole night with Joe Kelly. And yeah. he was my, my – really my best friend on the team, especially among the linebackers. He was like a little brother for me. We had a – almost a decade difference in age, but he was the first player uh, drafted a linebacker. I said, wow, this guy is better than me. He had such great movement. He was such a hitter that uh, I really, you know, felt that uh, Cincinnati would be lucky if they could allow him to play in Cincinnati for as long as I did, and he ended up playing uh, in four NFL teams for almost as long as I did. Yeah. He's a great guy, too. Well, he is a great guy. I mean, the things that he's doing to help kids now, uh, he and his wife, it really is uh, phenomenal. So uh, he's really made a difference in the quality of life in uh, the greater Cincinnati area, especially considering he came from an area in Compton that could use his kind of leadership. So, uh, you know, Cincinnati is fortunate that he chose that as his retirement home. All right, now we get to the Super Bowl twenty three season, 1988. The 87 team went 4-11-1. I think almost every game you guys lost that year seemed to be lost in the final couple minutes. Um, it was. What do you think turned that team around, and what part of the season did you realize that you guys had something special going? You know, what turned around, obviously, was the 88 season, and we had a home game. And, and I've, I've talked about it. I really feel like it was, it was the fight that many players got into at a birthday party on Friday night. You know, some players were showing up at Saturday's practice with bruises, et cetera, but it really bonded us. And then during the game, we opened against the uh, Cardinals with a goal line stand. And then to finish the game, to win the game, we did it with another goal line stand. And that season, we ended up not losing a single game at home. And that sort of turned it around for us. The whole feeling of the tremendous noise, the tremendous pounding from the crowd, the jungle came alive again. And it was something that held its way for the rest of the season. And uh, we won some tough games uh, on, you know, the road as well. So um, in, in terms of personal chemistry, you know, you just have to really uh, respect everyone's coming together. I mean, one of the things that happened was that I was a Cincinnati City Councilman, so I was missing a couple of days of practice every week. So I was a little bit, you know, fresher and um, – my relationship with Boomer and Chris uh, improved. I mean, basically, you know, it says a lot about his maturity um, because ultimately, you know, he got what he wanted, free agency and more money for quarterbacks. 
and the other specialty players, you know, versus putting all that high-end money into medical science and protection of players for the rest of their lives. Yeah. Now, you talked about the city council. I think you became a member, what, with two seasons left in your career, like 1987, 88. Uh, What led you to become a member of the Cincinnati City Council? Well, the seasons were 1988 and 1987. And so it was Aaron Bort, who was a member of the Cincinnati City Council. He was a member of the Charter Party. He was um, also a realtor. So there were a lot of um, properties that he owned, and there were some developments that he was getting ready to start that he had a conflict of interest in as a Cincinnati City Councilman. And because of the profile that I generated during the strike, you know, trying to speak for the team, I'm, I'm, I'm still in the role of NFL Man of the Year. I didn't feel it was appropriate regardless of who was the NFL Man of the Year, that that person who was recognized for a humanitarian, you know, record and caring about kids, that is not the person you want crossing the picket line. So, you know, it, it, was, it was my sort of uh, decision, but in the season, you know, everyone's got to let it go. And so the team really came together. Um, tremendous execution on offense. You know, Stanley Wilson was a major addition, which is one of the reasons why the night before the game was so devastating for everyone that we just didn't see it coming. Yeah. Man, I mean, he but was unbelievably the... talented. He might have had more talent than any running back on that team, too, and that was a team with four or five great running backs. Well, it was Icky's uh, coming out year, and he had a phenomenal year. But the thing that people don't realize, it was who was blocking for him. And when Boomer was having his great performance passing the ball, you start saying, well, who, who was blocking for Boomer? And it was Stanley. And uh, he was very tough in getting us a lot of those hard, short yards that were important in extending a drive. And uh, he was a person that I personally took under my wing as a Cincinnati City Councilman. And I had uh, numerous times go and sort of defend him uh, publicly for the team giving him his third chance. And um, it was about to pay off, and uh, uh, it it unfortunately did not pay off, and we lost out in a big way. Yeah, I think people forget how big a part he played, not just there, but even in the playoffs. I mean, I think he scored a couple touchdowns in the divisional game against Seattle. And the field that we were playing on in Super Bowl twenty-three was one of the worst fields ever played on for any football game. Two players were uh, hurt uh, badly in those games, Tim Crumry on our side and Steve Wallace on their side, both because of the turf. But that would have been a perfect surface for Stanley Wilson. The one thing that we couldn't do was generate successive first downs, which is why we gave San Francisco so many shots in the first half. And obviously we went into halftime tied up. And um, then Stan, uh, Stanford Jennings opened up with 
a yeah, touchdown the on the on the kickoff return. Yeah, and all of a sudden we're up by seven. That's how we played the rest of the game, trying to hold that lead. And the offense really didn't expend anything other than another uh, field goal. Yeah, and if I remember right, that field goal before it, I think it was like third and eight, and instead of trying to get the first down, they just ran the ball and took the field goal. Yeah, that was something that, uh, you know, you, had, you know, the, the halftime was, was kind of interesting because, you know, Tim Cromroy, who, you know, is such a stalwart member of our team, he was our team captain, but the fact that he was still there, and, you know, halftime and, you know, everyone sort of said, Tim, you need to go to the hospital. It was kind of a distraction, you know. You know, you, yeah. you really need to, you know, get everyone together and say, okay, here's what we're doing right, and here's what uh, we can improve upon. And we never got to that improve upon part, you know, because we were so satisfied with what we were doing right. And uh, David Grant had a phenomenal game. He was filling – in admirably for Tim, but there were things that we needed to be prepared for, and ultimately we were unable to respond to in that final drive of uh, the San Francisco 49ers in the final three uh, three minutes of the game. Yeah, and there were a lot of things on the final drive that could be questioned. I mean, what was your take on the final drive? Well, it's, it, it is my my only nightmare if I allow myself to go there. Um, I, I think it's a eight or nine play drive. I'm in there for the first one or two plays that then Dick LeBeau takes me out. Uh, I'm standing behind him looking at the field the remainder of the drive. I never imagined that that was my last play. I kept waiting for him to call another defense that's going to bring me back on the field. And in large part because we had lost Tim Crumroy, I really felt that there was one aspect of uh, being an effective defender that uh, Dick LeBeau was not taking into consideration during that last drive, and that was leadership in the huddle. And uh, the opportunity to make sure that everyone – is totally focused on their assignment. They're not remembering that drop pass. They're not remembering that missed coverage. They're focused in on how everyone, especially during these long timeouts, especially because there was one holding penalty where San Francisco was at second and 20. And uh, that's when you really want everyone focused on on their defense. They were able to get those yards back so quickly. For me, it's all about Yeah, I think it was like two plays later they had a first down. That was after I think Randy Cross held on that. So, you know, in large part, you know, that's been one of my my lessons in life. You know, even as I built uh, Disney's Wide World of Sports, I actively sought input from uh, everyone around me. And, uh, you know, even if they're going to tell me what I want to hear, I'm asking them to tell me what I don't want to hear because that's the difference between winning and losing in business and in sports. Yeah, and tell us, I mean, you did some great things with Disney and the Wide World of Sports Complex. Tell us how you got involved with that and a little bit about your experience there. Well, I was uh, retired at the time and uh, was working for the NFL in California. They had asked me to stay on 
after dismantling the World League of American Football and basically firing me. But what happened was that was the year of the Rodney King riots, and they had an image problem with Super Bowl Twenty Seven being played in Pasadena. So they asked me to take on the role of director of community service and come up with some project that would spin it in the appropriate light for the National Football League other than them coming in, taking over all of the resources of the community, having a party, bringing in their private jets and limos, and leaving. And that's where I came up with the idea of NFL Youth Education Town, a multifaceted safe place for kids with the state-of-the-art computers and cold and hot showers and classrooms and opportunities for them to have fitness uh, equipment. And right there in their community at the same corner where the Rodney King riots started. And while I was recruiting corporate partners, I went to lunch with uh, one of my Dartmouth classmates who was then the treasurer of Disney. His name was Michael Montgomery. And while I'm at lunch with him at the Team Disney headquarters, Michael Eisner comes up to the table. His sons had just graduated from Dartmouth. They had played hockey there. The company had just bought an NHL franchise and named it the Mighty Ducks. And he came and asked my opinion on that. And then he asked my opinion on what I would do if I had all the land that he has available at Walt Disney World and to do something with sports on it. And yeah. just off the top of my head, I basically gave him my ideas, which ultimately became Disney's Wide World of Sports, this ultimate international competition place for kids in all sports. Um, win or lose, you're going to be treated to a first-class experience, thus by hopefully deepening your romance with the sports of your choice. And Disney's Wide World Sports, which is now ESPN Wide World of Sports, has delivered on that promise and is uh, the largest youth complex in the world. All right, so what occupies your time nowadays, Reggie? It's rehab, you know. It's about uh, responding to a little bit of adversity when you talk about – you know, a legacy of linebacker toughness. You know, I've been dealing with the issues of aging appropriately. I've had a aorta dissection, which is the muscle that cover the heart, and that has had to be surgically repaired and on. New Year's Eve, I had a stroke, and I think that I have responded well to the rehab and have recovered significantly from that. And it's about increasing, you know, all of the positive things in your lifestyle. You know, one of the problems I have with my knee is it hampers me from having a consistent cardiovascular regime. And so that is one of the reasons that uh, it's affected uh, my blood flow in my brain. But I've been able to find other ways to uh, work on that. And thus far, 
I'm feeling really good in my rehab, and uh, I've enjoyed the opportunity to be here in Punta Gorda, Florida, which is about 100 miles south of Orlando, and just enjoying the peace and ambiance here. Well, I, I tell you, I have no doubt you'll ever overcome any obstacles placed in front of you because you always have, Reggie. Well, thank you. You know, one of the things I will also finish up on in talking about uh, Walt Disney World is ultimately my responsibilities uh, included not just Disney's Wild World of Sports, but it also included both our water parks, which were Blizzard Beach and Typhoon Lagoon, and all of our golf courses, but it also included the hiring and supervision of all of the lifeguards. And that includes the lifeguards that were at the Grand Floridian Hotel where the little two-year-old boy was taken horribly by an alligator. That was my area of responsibility. So, you know, it is one of the things that I do know Central Florida, the greater Cincinnati area, enjoys a great visitation, has a great uh, relationship with the Walt Disney World Resort, and uh, you certainly want people to continue to have a real positive uh, uh, feeling about their safety when they're at the happiest place on earth. But there certainly was something about that happening that personally struck me because if I was still in my role at Walt Disney World, I would have been one of the first phone calls, and I would have been there all night until there had been resolution. So um, the tragedy is coupled, obviously, with what happened at Pulse nightclub um, the day before. So leaving Cincinnati has been um, sort of a a post-tearful experience, you know, and so in that regard, you know, it's time to move forward. You know, you want to be positive and whatnot. And uh, in that vein, that's why I'm, I wanted to talk to you as well, Mike, because you know, this is a season for the Cincinnati Bengals where they should have everything positive in their trunk, ready to move their engine forward. And um, so hopefully the fans, even though disappointed by how a last season ended, the quicker the team gets out of the block this season, the better. Yeah, and, and I mean, as you spoke before, I think the Bengals really miss out on not having a ring of fame, a Hall of Fame at the stadium. For guys like yourself, Anthony Munoz, Kenny Anderson, Lamar Parrish, Isaac Curtis, Jim McClare, I just think that it would connect today's fans with the past a lot more, and I think it would have a huge impact on the franchise itself. Well, I'm obviously very positive about that. I do remember Paul Brown himself before he passed away and before I left Cincinnati while I was on Cincinnati City Council when I had to recluse myself from voting on the early discussions on the new stadium was that was always part of the original expectation. Uh, was that that was an opportunity in their own place to honor their own players. And that's a direct conversation that I've had with Paul Brown. So what's ever been lost in translation has also not resulted in a Super Bowl championship. Whether it's coincidental or not, you know, it, it is, you know, a reality that everyone has to digest 
uh, you're moving forward. But that having been said, you know, we need to rally everything and everyone around uh, what's necessary to optimize the opportunity for this team to feel the support of our fans so they can do what they need to do to bring a championship back to the Queen City. I mean, you gotta, yeah, well, you got to admire LeBron for doing what he said he was going to do. And well, as I'd much as I hate to win a championship because it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do, Mike. It really isn't. But, hey, Reggie, it was an absolute honor having you on the show. And I know Joe's going to be asking me, did you ask him to be on the Bengals Weekly Show this year? So the the offer is always standing whenever you want to come on and talk with me and Joe during the season. We'll look forward to it, Mike, and obviously uh, always uh, look forward to spending quality time with Joe Kelly and uh, all of the fans that uh, listen to your show in the greater Cincinnati area. Who day, who day, who day. All right. Thanks a lot, Reggie. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Bye. All right, guys. Remember to check out The Grueling Truth at thegruelingtruth.net. Tomorrow we'll have another former Cincinnati Bengal from that Super Bowl 23 team. Defensive tackle Jim Scow will be on the show. Um, next Tuesday night on the Legends show, we'll have former Seattle Seahawk running back Kurt Warner. Um, also, I am in talk setting up a day with Dave Craig, which could probably come within the next two or three days. And then Eric Dickerson will be a guest here over the next couple months. I talked to him today, so he's definitely interested in being on the show. Um, you can follow us on Twitter, at Grueling Truth. Remember, gruelingtruth.net is our website. You can hear all of our shows on iTunes, iHeart, TuneIn, Google Music, Stitcher, pretty much anywhere you get podcasts, you'll find The Grueling Truth. So for Reggie Williams, I'm Mike Goodpaster. You've been listening to The Grueling Truth, where the legends speak.